Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Chuck Weir. I'm in neurobiology, but I've been a member of the Cancer Center for over 40 years, uh, going back to the days when it was just a little hole in the ground up in Hanover. Uh, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience for me. And I'm very privileged to welcome every one of you here, as well as the people that are watching remotely. Um, before I introduce Dr. Markovic, I've been asked to read the following uh, uh, statement. Dr. Markovic does not have any financial interest. He reports that he has uh, well, he told me that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he attests that he is not receiving direct payments from uh, a commercial entity with, uh, with respect to, uh, uh, to this activity. Now, for those of you who are interested in obtaining CME credit, uh, you must sign the CME form on your way out. Uh, and uh, uh, with that, I, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Svetmir uh, Markovic, who I was really privileged to meet uh, back about four or five months ago when, um, uh, when I visited Mayo. And by way of background, uh, he is a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic, also a professor of oncology and associate professor in immunology. He came to the United States from Macedonia and actually very, speaks very fluent Macedonian. Uh, there will be a quiz at the end. Uh, That's right. But uh, in 1985, and uh, obtained his uh, PhD degree in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the uh, Medical College of, Pen of Pennsylvania. And then in 1993, obtained his uh, uh, doctorate degree in medicine, also from Medical College of, of Pennsylvania. And it was after that, that he rose through the ranks from assistant professor to full professor uh, in the Department of Oncology and other departments that I mentioned at the, at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, to date, he chairs the Midwest Melanoma Partnership, uh, which is really moving uh, uh, translationally from bench to bedside. Uh, he has published in excess of 185 papers, and just by way of background, his primary research focus of his laboratory is gaining insight into the tumor and host immune system interactions to design drug combinations that effectively treat uh, uh, metastatic melanoma. And by these novel drug treatments, these extend but are not exclusive to chemotherapy, immunotherapy, adjuvant therapy, and uh, anti-angiogenic uh, therapy. The lab uh, uses uh, uh, pregnancy as a model system in some respects to study tumor-derived factors uh, and the way in which tumors interact with the, uh, with the immune system. Uh, in addition to being funded th through the National Institutes of Health, uh, the NCI, and the Department of Defense, uh, he also now has a very close working relationship with NASA engineers and is working uh, uh, with math mathematicians to integrate immunological data of healthy donors with cancer patients to mathematically model the uh, immune system and tumor interactions that are occurring. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. The title of his presentation is Modern, Modern Immunotherapy for Advanced uh, Melanoma, Inhibitors of PD-1. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mark. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, everybody. 
so at the end of, the, of uh, my talk today, everybody will be required to spell my first name backwards. So if you can imagine, I'm a victim of identity theft. I figure it's keep it if you want it. Uh, so when I was thinking about what to talk about today, you know, I sort of, uh, my talk is going to be a mishmash of a variety of different things. Uh, a little bit of clinical work, uh, a little bit of basic tumor immunology, uh, and our melanoma experience within our program. We at Mayo have a pretty big practice in this, and, and a lot of us that have grown, grown up in the ranks of sort of experimental cancer therapeutics in this disease were almost by default immunologists because nothing else worked. This has obviously changed a few years ago. I'll talk to you a little bit sort of at the, the end of my, my talk will be share with you some developments uh, in, within our group and within our lab that I think may be useful for all of us. Because about five years ago, we, we, we thought there's, there's a lot of, there's a tsunami of new treatments that are coming up in this disease. And we need to develop methodology and we should understand how it works so that we do not repeat the mistakes of the past or just slapping things together into clinical trials and looking for outcomes. So hopefully at, at the end of my talk, I'll summarize uh, all of these points from a perspective of, of tumor immunology. So just to sort of uh, take you on, on a, bit of a, a bit of a journey through the field of uh, cancer immunology, of tumor immunology, uh, just as a reminder for those of you that don't, haven't been studying this for 25 years like I have, is, you know, the, the thing called the immune system is, is a very uh, sort of disseminated uh, matrix organ system within the body. Uh, which has its own organs, the lymph nodes. It has its own channels, the lymphatic channels, and also is anatomically distributed where the cells of the immune system that travel throughout the body are anatomically differentially functional within the various organs of the body of the lung, the gut, the spleen, the liver, and the skin. So there is an anatomy to the organ of the immune system which is dis is, is sort of diffusely present in the, hum, in the human body. The basic premise of tumor immunology is that as cancer develops, and we develop cancer cells on, on an ongoing basis, you know, exposures to McDonald's, you know, certainly not something that we were engineered to, 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 to have. Uh, cancer antigens are constantly shed. I'm glad you guys picked up on that. Yeah, that's usually kicks better earlier in the day, but I, I think we need to have more coffee outside. But, you know, cancer antigens, and this is a tumor, are constantly shed in the body and to which antigen-presenting cells, uh, sort of the, the sentinel cells of the immune system, that read the environment to which we're exposed to and then educate uh, the body's immune system defense mechanisms in the, in the lymph nodes from which uh, they deploy or the body deploys effector cells that go after the tumors that, were, that, were, that are subsequently destroyed. This loop of events goes on all the time, 24-7 since birth. And the reason we all don't die of cancer in our first year of life is because something is protecting us from that. And that one thing is the immune system. However, cancer does develop. People die of cancer. So tumor immunologists see of, as malignant diseases as a failure of this feedback mechanism of containment of what is a natural process of injury in the, in the human body as a result of the environment. Our field holds its roots with William Coley in uh, 1891, uh, 
a surgeon at Memorial Hospital or at that time New York Hospital in New York City who basically uh, was taking care of a patient, of a close friend of uh, Jay Rockefeller who essentially was injected. He, he noticed that patients with cancer that developed infections with erysipelas or sort of superficial bacterial infections had at times reduction of their tumors. Not cures, but the tumor size would actually be reduced. Uh, and back in 1891, he didn't have PET scanners, CTs, and those kind of things. So he postulated that the infection, overwhelming infections in, in patients with cancer, could be used to treat cancer itself. So he ended up injecting intratumorally streptococcus and serratia recessives in a patient of a, with who had a large sarcoma, which ended up reducing the tumor size and nearly killed the patient, but the tumor shrank in, 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 in volume. Uh, which is not how we treat cancer today, by the way. Uh, but you know, but that proof that inflammation can cause the tumor to shrink was really the foundation of how we today think of cancer immunotherapeutics in which to turn the immune system. Just to kind of put you sort of in perspective where other fields were, in, 19, in 1891, Thomas Edison was 44. He had just introduced the kinetoscope, uh, and which, of course, uh, drove the film industry. My, my countryman, Nikola Tesla, was still uh, trying to uh, make an alternating current motor in Switzerland. Uh, Henry Ford, the year before, went to work for, for Edison and was... Uh, sort of working with this thing called an internal combustion engine that, that uh, Edison never let him do. And Albert Einstein was preparing for junior prom uh, at, a, at the age of, nine, of 12. So in these fields, a lot has changed. In our field, a lot has changed, but fairly recently. So let me walk you a little bit into uh, sort of how you know, I'm a med practicing medical oncologist, sort of how we approach cancer therapy. So I treat metastatic cancer for a living. Most of my time is spent in treating metastatic malignant melanoma. Conventional forms of cancer therapy, fundamentally chemotherapy, surgery, radiation therapy, and small molecule targeted therapeutics, focus on the tumor as its sole target and are sort of in many ways agnostic of anything else between uh, the syringe and the tumor. Cancer immunotherapeutics is in many ways therapy by proxy. We do something to the patient's own internal immune defenses and promote them to go, go ahead and do the job because evolutionarily, this has evolved over 20 million years to know how to do this, it simply has failed. So it is not direct therapy, but it's indirect therapy. The objective primarily is to boost pre-existing anti-tumor immune responses that are already there but are not functioning very well. And through our history, uh, primarily uh, through basically since the 1970s, different ways to do this have been tried. Give someone a new or updated immune system, the story of the allogeneic bone marrow transplantation. The, the, the concept of bone marrow transplant involves cytotoxic chemotherapy to reduce tumor burden and use a donor immune system to destroy the remaining of the tumor. Unfortunately, the donor immune system also attacks the host, the graft versus host disease, the fatal complication of this disease. More recently, adoptive transfer, everything from the mid-1980s of lymphokine-activated killer cells where we would take uh, patients' uh, peripheral blood lymphocytes, grow them with high doses of IL-2, and re-inject these cells into the body to more conventional engineered T-cell receptors on T-cells that recognize tumor targets have involved 
the processing and manufacturing of cells from patients themselves. Give a hormone of the immune system that would increase immune cell function. The idea back in the 80s and early 90s was that the immune system is not, is normal, but the castle of the tumor is defending it. So we need to en enrich the army, get more troops to the barrier in order to overcome it. So pro-inflammatory uh, agents like interferon alpha and interleukin-2 have been used in order to enhance the troops, increase the number of active cancer cells to overcome. Uh, these have been minimally effective, uh, unfortunately. And of recently, as we've recognized about a decade ago, actually 15 years ago, that the immune system, the systemic immune system of patients with cancer is not normal. So the problem is not only where the tumor is, but the system at, in, at large gave rise to the, to the concept that interrupting whatever the tumor does to shut systemic immunity down may be a better way of addressing this problem rather than not specifically trying to raise everybody's function. And this is where I'll spend some time talking to you about immune checkpoint inhibitors, the anti-CTLA-4 molecule, and the anti-PD-1. And finally, probably the holy grail of this field is de novo immunization against cancer. The whole point of what we're trying to do is develop at some point a primary protection, primary preventative approach uh, to malignant disorders. This has only been achieved with Gardasil, which is a uh, HPV vaccine, which is a vaccine against a cancer-causing virus. So it's a viral vaccine, not a cancer vaccine that is in currently in clinical use. This is not an easy thing to do. And here are some of the things why. There's over 800 different mediators and regulators of immune cell function. So there's a lot of piece, pieces to this watch, to this clock of, of immunity. The immune system can both eliminate tumor or support cancer cells. About 70 to 80% uh, of vascular zero growth factor that is essential for the growth of blood vessels that support the growth of a tumor, no blood, no tumor, comes from tumor infiltrating macrophages, which are of the host, not of the tumor. The immune system is, dy uh, is dynamic. It demonstrates a temporal variability. Measurement of one's immune function today is likely going to be different from that tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. There are spatial and anatomic variability. The immune system of the liver is different than the immune system of the brain, is different than the immune system from the lung, even though they share a common ancestry. There are inter-individual differences. My neighbor's seven-year-old is seriously allergic to peanuts. So when she comes over to our house, we have to make sure that all surfaces are wiped down so she doesn't have an anaphylactic reaction in our house, whereas my children don't. I'm allergic to cats. I'm a good dad, so I still have two cats, but I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> Better living through chemistry, let me tell you. And, and also, Immune cells are sensitive to commonly prescribed over-the-counter medication. You know, I was learning from Dr. Weir this morning about all the fun things estrogens can do to, to the immune system. Beta blockers, you know, one of the most commonly prescribed medication in, in North America today, affect elements of immune function because immune cells in their various stages of activation express beta-adrenergic receptors. So it is a complicated picture and no wonder it's taken us 150 years to even go to step one in this, in this field. Why bother to do this? Uh, you know, 
besides, you know, sort of being patron saints of, of, of the lost causes, is that the immune effector systems are multi-target specific. And this is very important. And cancers are multi-target and heterogeneous. And their ability of immunity to read the change in the tumor, adapt to the change, and destroy the heterogeneous cancer in the dynamic interplay of the good and the bad, the yin and the yang of all of this, is the only way to the cure. This is not a simple problem, and therefore a simple solution would be somewhat naive to expect to solve it. Immunologic memory is long-term. For those of you that have children, you know, you know you go through all the shots during the first year of life, and then you don't. And your kids, our kids don't get smallpox, you know, they don't get polio. It's self-sustaining, and it may lead to disease eradication. Imagine a time in the future, which, you know, Jonas Salk was also trying to imagine a time when there would be no infectious polio, there would be no smallpox, where there would be no cancer. If we can solve the problem of tumor immunology, we can solve the problem of malignant disease. So, that's the setting. Here's first successes that we've had in this field that are really meaningful. Immune checkpoint inhibitors. Again, treatment by proxy. So, in a, in a, in a very simplistic and very fundamental way, how immune checkpoint inhibitors work is that sort of a casual T cell walks around the blood is introduced to antigens that are relevant to the tumor. And, and I'm a melanoma oncologist, so tumor for me is always black. Uh, so the immune cells, the antigen-presenting cell educates the T cells, shows them that, oh, this is, this is what the cancer looks like. Helper T cells proliferate, clonal differentiation occurs, cytotoxic T lymphocytes develop, they go and invade the tumor, and the tumor defends itself against these. So the first two realizations that came out of uh, Jim Allison's work at, at the, the Rockefeller about 15, 17 years ago, uh, Li Ping Chen and Haidang Dong at our institution uh, about, 14, about 13 years ago, was that one, it appeared that if a natural shutdown molecule that developed as a controlled downregulatory break on the initial activation of T cells when they're educated to the tumor antigen could be blocked, you could get more T cells that could recognize cancer. You know, every, every stimulus stimulation has counter, every action has equal and opposite counteraction. If, if you can take off the break on the antigen presentation side and the T cells don't shut down as quickly, you can get more T cells that would eventually recognize these targets. That was one idea, and in mice this worked really well, gave us CTLA-4 inhibition. And then the other idea was these programmed death receptors that were expressed on mature T cells, what they were finding, and this was a very nice paper in 2000, they were finding that the ligand to these programmed death receptors that were being expressed on tumor cells capable of, uh, on T cells capable of killing tumors, could be engaged by the tumor itself. So a T cell has, you know, is all ready to go kill the tumor, programmed death receptor expressed on the T cell, it's ligand on the tumor cell interaction, T cell dies, tumor grows. So the idea was, what would happen if we could block the activation, the, the, make activation of the T cell system in the education phase of this more effective, 
And what would happen if we could block the PD-1 receptor and the T cells that are already prepared to go kill the tumor and not see the tumor shut down ligand? And would these things result in better clinical outcomes? This was a, a disease that now in 2010, with some of this original work started coming out, had an average survival time of nine months. And that's if you were lucky. So what that means in practical terms, a patient that comes and sees you during Thanksgiving will not be alive for next year's Halloween. So this, was a, this is a very deadly disease called metastatic malignant melanoma. So here's where, where things got, got interesting. In, in the first clinical trial, phase three clinical study where Steve Hody done uh, by B, uh, Bristol Myers support, it published in 2010, patients were treated with either ipilimumab, the CTLA-4 inhibitor, ipilimumab plus a GP100 vaccine, a completely irrelevant vaccine, uh, as it turned out, or the, the vaccine alone. And in the overall survival and progression-free survival times, the patients that got the IPI treatments, either with or without the vaccine, had a tail on this curve of survival that roughly about 20% of the patients, 17 to 20% of the patients, were still alive years and years after treatment, and this is a control arm. So there was a survival advantage when patients were treated. Remember, not with a drug that did anything to the malignancy, but only acted on the initial priming events by which the immune system saw the tumor. And this phase three clinical trial that in 2010 was published in the New England Journal led to the first approval of ipilimumab, Jim Allison's uh, molecule of his entire career, to show that there was a survival benefit for the first time in metastatic malignant melanoma. Then the question became, uh, what about blocking the PD-1 side of things? So initial trials with nivolumab or pembrolizumab Two big clinical trials, uh, Caroline Robert from the Gustave Roussy in Paris and Adil Dowd at, at UCSF uh, led these studies for the respective uh, pharmaceutical companies. And all of a sudden, we were starting to get objective response rates here on the ORR that were initially in the 10% range. And what this basically means, what's the fraction of patients in whom the tumor actually shrinks in any meaningful way? All of a sudden, about a third of the patients were seeing shrinkage of tumors. In metastatic malignant melanoma, we had never seen this before. So all of a sudden now, working on the PD-1 side of the equation was yielding volume reduction of the tumor with overall survival rates now at the median, leading to 22 months, no more of just improving the tail on the curve, but actually shifting median survival times from the nine-month to 10-month range almost to two years. Doesn't sound like much, but it was at that time. So then the idea was, oh my goodness, you know, it used to be, I was telling Chuck, you know, the melanoma sessions uh, at American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting would be, you know, the, the speakers would show up, their friends would show up, a couple of their kids would be there to be, you know, proud of mom and dad about to give an oral presentation, and that was pretty much it. Most people had their lunch in our sessions uh, and then went on to something more, more exciting. Not so anymore, I'm happy to say. So when, when these first uh, results of the blockades of the PD-1 receptors and the CTLA-4 were coming out, you know, we, we at oncology are very good at one thing, and that's if something works a little, we want to give a heck of a lot more of it because it's got to be work more, must be better. So two sets of studies that I, I want to talk to you about uh, came out. 
One is increasing the dose of the PD-1 inhibitors. You know, could we, if we blocked 10 cells and got a 40% objective response rate, how about if we blocked 100 cells, could we get a 400% objective response rate? Not really. Uh, or if, how about if we blocked the, the, both the CTLA-4 and the PD-1 uh, targets in combination therapy, essentially hitting this uh, T-cell survival pathway at two different levels, could we potentially get more good guys to kill the bad guys and people live longer? So out came, essentially, from January of this year, uh, a series of New England Journal publications and Lancet papers on this. And the first of them was ipilimumab, single-agent uh, CTLA-4 inhibition, versus higher doses of the, uh, CD, of the PD-1 inhibitor given every two or every three weeks. And unfortunately, again, the objective response rates really didn't change much beyond the one-third benefit that we had seen, even with the lower dose, up to five times lower the dose. So just simply upping the dose, surprise, surprise, didn't really make much of a difference. But when we combined two different inhibitor, checkpoint inhibitors, ipilimumab and nivolumab, in phase one results, uh, phase two data and what ultimately uh, led to the approval of this combination in June of this, uh, of this year was phase three clinical trials where objective response rates were now almost reaching 60%. Again, for a disease in which no survival benefit was achievable only five years ago, in which we could never hope to show tumor shrinkage, all of a sudden more than half the patients were seeing volume reduction in this tumor. And this was a simplistic combination. We had one agent that was active, a second agent that was active, you know, put them together, they're more active. Well, as, as always happens in oncology, in medical oncology, with the good come the bad. And unfortunately, over half, almost 70% of the patients had serious side effects of treatment. We were overdriving the system, producing autoimmunity, shutting livers down, sloughing colons, knocking out pituitary glands, blocking antibodies, we were doing a lot of mischief uh, in these patients at, at, a, at, a, at a retail price of $300,000 a year. But we were getting survivals of up to two years. So where we are in our field as of today, and I just have to mention at the end, just in October, the FDA granted three more approvals in malignant melanoma. So, you know, I, I, I figured, you know, Chuck only gave me an hour to talk to you guys. I otherwise would have to take him the whole afternoon. Uh, but where we are today in, in all practical sense is cancer immunotherapy works. I think the, the precedent has been set. The, the idea that turning on elements of the immune system that already exist there and making them more able to do their job in targeting the cancer, I think that point has been made. Anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 therapy is effective in prolonging life of patients with metastatic melanoma and metastatic lung cancer. And this is expanding now in just about everything that has an OMA at the end of it is being tested in this. Higher doses of, of just one agent have not added benefits. So the simplistic just add more of the same thing does not seem to cross the threshold. Combinations, again, relatively simple combinations of things that we currently have do seem to offer a benefit, but we are nearing maximal tolerated dose toxicity. So just slapping things together may not get us to the promised land on this, in this type of treatment. So we need to, we need to, do, we need to do better. What are, where do we go from here? 
We need to improve our understanding of biology, a concept not, not unfamiliar to, to us in this field. Identify clinically useful biomarkers so we don't bankrupt the country on the cost of these agents. And develop more effective and less toxic combinatorial therapeutics, all very lofty goals that have existed in the field of cancer therapy and cancer medicine since its foundation. But now we can actually do something here. So what are we doing about this? So, you know, so I, I sit at this, uh, this, this wonderful institution in the middle of, of, of farm country, USA. There's really nothing much to do over there but do work. So if anybody's interested, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, I was telling uh, somebody yesterday, you know, if you look at the roster in the yellow pages of, of uh, Rochester, Minnesota, the restaurant list, the first thing that comes up is Arby's. You know, so <laughs> that's what we consider a restaurant. So it's, uh, you know, it is mid the Midwest. So what, what, do we, what do we do? So our group kind of started looking at all this stuff, and you know, we, we, we take pride in the fact that pdl one was developed in a lab two doors down from mine. And we kind of broke up the problem in these four little boxes here. You know, can normal tissues be specifically protected in the storm of autoimmunity that is produced by nonspecific immune activation? That's one clinical problem. And I, I work at an institution that we have specialists of everything. Uh, we actually have a cardiology consulting service that is called for a rapid heart rate, rate or a slow heart rate. We have 180 cardiologists. Uh, so what, what all is going on at the tumor side? Remember, our fundamental understanding of tumor microenvironment immunobiology is very, very, very minimal and very rudimentary, especially in humans. Is PDL1 only limited to the tumor, or does some of it spill out into blood? There's a lot of work right now, and people have recognized that this target is primarily on the tumor site, but does it stay there? Can some of this be washed out? And could this be acting not at the tumor site, but long before these cells ever see the tumor? And, and fundamentally, what is the status of the immune cells that are targeted by anti-PD1, anti-CTL4? Remember. You know, if, you, if these guys aren't there, no amount of blocking antibodies is going to matter because it's the cells themselves that are doing the work. If they're not there, you can put, uh, you know, pounds and pounds and pounds and millions of dollars of PD-1 inhibitors. If the cells are not there, it's going to be ineffective. So I'll just focus on these two here, you guys, because unfortunately I don't have time to uh, go through all of this. So, so what we've tried to do is, in many ways, what I'll try to cover for you, is, is develop aspects of technology that may be useful for other disciplines that are worrying about sort of immune processes in humans in order to understand how to better both develop treatments for cancer as well as better use the ones we have. So the first problem is, you know, if the immune cells is understanding the tumor uh, microenvironment immunobiology, and, and the fundamental story here is, if the immune cell doesn't get into the tumor, it's not going to matter. You know, if uh, if you if the Starbucks is closed, they're not going to make money because you can't get to the coffee, no matter how good the coffee is. And the conventional way in which this has been studied is immunohistochemistry, peroxidase, antiperoxidase, immunohistochemistry. And of course, all of you recognize that this is metastatic malignant melanoma here. And here's essentially the lymph node uh, barrier, is a met to the node. And here with this sort of what I'm told is relatively good uh, stain, we have a brown deposit of CD3 positive cells. This is the origin of the majority of our knowledge of the microanatomy of the tumor environment. 
And about several years ago, we started a project in which we can interrogate the tumor microenvironment with multicolor analysis for multiple different phenotypes of different tissues and identify the functional states and identification of signaling molecules, as well as the identity of various immune, uh, immune cell subsets and tumor cell subsets. And what this technology has, has uh, really evolved, and this is a collaboration with Michael Gertis at GE Life Science, is what we've understood is that th there is a significant amount of heterogeneity within the tumor as it interacts with the immune system. And blind biopsies of various aspects of this tumor are heavily driven by where the needle goes through. This uh, yellow stuff here, which designates a lot of CD3 positive T cells, will give you a result of a highly inflamed tumor. If you look at this portion of the tumor that gets biopsied, there's no T cell infiltration in there. And so the, some of the efforts that we, we and others have tried over the years to try to do whole exome sequencing of every T cell, every ground up piece of tumor I can lay my hands on was flawed because we were dependent on where the needle went. And there is a heterogeneity in that approach. So what we're doing right now is in studying this project, uh, what we can do is we can identify various molecules both on the tumor and the immune side and try to understand how the interplay of the two in whole tissue resections are affected in the untreated versus the treated state. And what we're also trying to do is, you know, pretty pictures are, are great for covers or anything, but you know, how much, how much can we really learn from this? And, and you know, what we did about, about a decade ago is, is started really working and developing spatial statistics and trying to understand ways by which we could identify XY coordinates of variously identified immune cell subsets, apoptotics, T cells, you know, you, you name your phenotype, and we can do roughly 100 to 120 of these. And then what we do is we look, and this will be on your exam at the end, by the way, uh, you know, and at the end, we basically look at the relative radii among cells of interest. So do proximity versus distance analysis of, for instance, from the apoptotic tumor cell, are CD3, CD8, uh, non-PD1 positive T cells proximal in an entire field, and this is one field, but across an entire paraffin embedded section of tumor, can that be, can that be statistically analyzed? And can we get confidence intervals by comparing multiple identified cells vis-a-vis -vis multiple other identified cells, depending at your, with your analytes of choice? And this actually came out of Department of Justice uh, analyt analytical systems uh, to study the distribution of FBI agents in the United States across the country, whereby instead of immune cells, they would have crime, crime rates. And this is how they, how they do this. So we sort of pirated that to, to, to our, our use. And what we found, you know, we're, we're in the Midwest, you guys. We don't have a lot. We, we, you know, we, we don't have, we got to make do with what we have. So <laughs> we try to, we try to re reinvent. And what we're trying to do right now is our approach to this problem, the tumor microenvironment, is where we're consistently finding that the tumor cores, this is in the untreated state, there's an immunologic distinction, distinct patterns between the core of the tumor, the immune interface, and the outer rim very much so like the depths of the ocean, uh, which my fifth grade uh, daughter gave me the slide, which you have kind of the sunlight zone, the twilight zone, and the midnight zone. We're really probably seeing portions of the top here at the interface and trying to understand why this exists. 
how this barrier is maintained, both from the tumor and from the immune side, may be very insightful. And I'm hoping that we will have a paper to this effect coming soon. Issue number two. Well, you know, that's a tumor excisional biopsy. And, you know, and my surgeons love me because, you know, I usually call them on a Friday at 4 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. You know, what you doing? You know, I, got, I got three liver lesions that need to come out tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's, we, we, we get along. But the, the issue is, is, you know, these are, in, in many ways, terminal experiments. You, you take the tumor out, you analyze it, and that's it. What we've learned over the years is that immunity is dynamic. You know, you, you immunize somebody and then you immunize again. And if, you, if your booster immunization is too early, you get tolerance. If your booster immunization is on time, you get immunologic memory. So is there a way to dynamically follow tumor infiltration in patients with cancer that are getting cancer immunotherapy? So again, modern-day immunotherapy works via tumor infiltration by cytotoxic T lymphocytes. There is anecdotes that tumor swelling can lead to dramatic therapeutic benefit, the pseudoprogression uh, of the early days of this. And is there a way to visualize and quantify tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in the tumor microenvironment in real time as they mediate their antitumor effect? Uh, and about 10 years worth of work went into these three slides, uh, where we first started uh, in collaboration with La Sapienza in Rome. By the way, great place to, for wine, in case anybody's interested. Uh, and what we did is we, we developed, we developed uh, took recombinant interleukin-2 and linked it with a Hycampton linker to Technetium-99, which is a spec-sensitive, spec-camera-sensitive tracer. And the first study we did is we did it as a disease called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And the reason we did this is this is a very distinct clinical entity in which T cells attack the thyroid gland and destroy it. And it's all CD8 positive cells. And we were able to visualize consistently the tumor, the, the thyroid infiltration by T cells relative to a normal control. So we did a, a clinical trial uh, that uh, fortunately the NIH was kind enough to support us. Uh, where we looked at IL-2 technetium-99 uh, uh, traces given to patients treated with ipilimumab or pembrolizumab at the time. We had 12 patients planned to go on this study. We, tr we did images uh, pre-treatment uh, and three weeks after the last dose, uh, and the imaging was done with a SPECT-CT camera. So this is not a PET camera, this is a SPECT-CT camera, much cheaper instrument. Uh, and we were able to do five patients uh, on this trial uh, simply because of uh, the feasibility that, that took to develop the tracer. And here's an example of some of the images, and this is hopefully going to be uh, in press here really soon. Uh, this is what a, a cross-section of, of legs of a patient looks like, and here are three sites of metastatic melanoma, and this is a stain for CD3, and the core of the needle uh, demonstrates a brown stain, which denotes uh, the tumor infiltrate, infiltrating lymphocytes within the biopsy of the tumor. Down here, you have a right supraclavicular uh, lymph node that is cold. It doesn't have the uptake of the tracer. And what the biopsy shows is the majority of the tumor of the core is not infiltrated by CD3 positive cells, and only the periphery is, and this is red out, it's negative. And uh, hopefully by the end of the year, uh, this was sufficient safety data for the FDA. We will have an IND to basically uh, do this as a much larger trial and try to understand whether this form of imaging actually is relevant. And can we, in fact, 
track the evolution of tumor infiltration in metastatic malignant melanoma as a result of treatment and potentially get an early read of successive therapy, uh, which would be something very clinically useful as today we do not have a way to do this. So the next, the next uh, problem we, we wanted to tackle at our group uh, is, you know, the state of the immune cells available to checkpoint inhibition. And remember, program death receptors cause death to, tumor, to immune cells. So is there a way that we could know how many of those PD-1 positive cells are already dead and not only PD-1 positive? So Haidong Dong in our group uh, sort of went on to, to study this and has identified uh, a signaling molecule downstream of PD-1, the BIM protein, which is BCL2 interacting mediator of cell death, a pro-apoptotic molecule that he finds is upregulated following in, within T cells following engagement by the PDL1 ligand. So the PDL1 binds to PD1 and the T cell increases its intracellular content of BIM. So what we did is, and here is essentially a graphic explanation of that, is that when the interaction of the receptor and the ligand takes place, BIM gets accumulated, uh, the T cell enters apoptotic cell death, but if uh, anti-PD-1 antibody interrupts this, uh, there is less uh, advancement of the T cell towards the death pathway and it retains some of its cytolytic capacity. So what we did is, is we, you know, our our clinical and our research divisions are only separated by a street. So we, we work very closely together with, with our clinical and lab colleagues. And what we did is in the early days of, of uh, pembrolizumab uh, anti-PD-1 therapy, we basically uh, took uh, 38 patients uh, and measured the number, uh, in essence, of BIM positive, sort of this uh, advancing along the apoptotic pathway T-cells that were also PD-1 positive. And prior to treatment in patients that had disease progression 12 weeks after anti-PD-1 therapy versus those that had complete response, partial response to stable disease, we found that the patients did better were those patients that had more apoptotic T-cells. You know, how's that possible, we wondered. And what happened was, on repeat sampling 12 weeks later, what we found was in the patients that actually did best, there, there appeared to be a reduction in the number of the apoptotic T-cell pool in the blood, in the subset of, 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 of T-cells that we believe mediate the anti-tumor effect, whereas there was a continued increase in, in the apoptotic population of cells in patients that showed disease progression. And what later ended up being, and uh, he just got funded uh, to look at this, was that in, in, in patients, and we find a, a larger number of the tumor-reactive CTL uh, are in, in whom the apoptosis is driven primarily by the PD-1, PD-L1 signaling pathway, those patients tend to get the best results with anti-PD-1 therapy and tend to resolve the proportion of cells that are apoptotic and this may be a useful thing for us to follow clinically because the, re, the further increase of this may signa, signal a need to retreat with anti-PD-1 therapy, addressing potentially what is the subject of a, of a new grant for us, uh, trying to address whether or not following the numbers of these cells in circulation as a monitoring tool in patients in whom we discontinue anti-PD-1 therapy. Remember, 
Today, we don't know when to stop treatment. Patient gets a benefit, and we all stress a great deal about how to stop treatment. These drugs cost three dollars to $400,000 a year, and we give them for two years. That's a lot of money, so we need to be better at this. So this is something that we're investigating right now, purely from the standpoint of the PD-1, PD-L1 interaction. Well, you know, immunity is complicated. There's a lot more things besides PD-1 and PD-L1, and you know, this is just uh, a textbook slide uh, of, of just the cytokine networks of the very simplistic 101 course in immunology that we give. And the question is really, is there a systematic way to study something as complex as this? And, and this is a question, you know, that I've been struggling with since I went into graduate school on this, and I recognize that, you know, interferons didn't do one thing. And just, you know, take your molecule of choice, take your cell of choice, and how we, we f always say, well, you know, in this context it does one thing, in that context it does one other thing. You know, tumor necrosis factor probably does just about everything short of making coffee. I mean, I think these, these things all do a lot of different things. So is there a way to study something as complex like that in a meaningful way? And remember, all, all I'm looking for is Mrs. Jones living to next Christmas. You know, I, I'm, I don't want, I'm not, I'm not crazy here. But is there a way to understand what in this mirage of interactions actually is relevant for clinical outcome and what is not? So there might be, there might be. And this is something kind of an unusual project in, in our program that, that came out of uh, something very unexpected. Uh, here's an immunohistochemical stain of PDL1 in human melanoma. And this is what we see all the time. Here's the normal lymph node, here's the tumor, there's the barrier. There's a, there's a selective anatomic distribution of where the PD-1, L1, the PD-1 shutdown signal comes, and it comes at the barrier between healthy and ill. So what's interesting about that, there's also another organ in, in human biology that also creates a barrier of PD-L1 between one side versus another, and that turns out to be the human placenta. So what we, we started looking into this, and as it turns out, if you really, you know, if, if you really sort of think about it, the placenta and a malignancy share a lot of the same cell types, a lot of the same functional cell states, a lot of the same immune regulatory levers are active in cancer as they are in placenta. Just think about it. Invasion into the myometrium, immunosuppression. You know, the fact that a haploidentical host can exist within a mom should be anathema to anybody who's passed immunology because that's the biggest stimulus to immunologic challenge. And yet it happens. We, we kind of went a little bit deeper in this and we looked at basically, we kind of, you know, my, my, my graduate student at the time said, I said, you know, go to the literature and give me a list of 100 of the known uh, mediators of inflammation that shut down immunity and fetal maternal tolerance. And let's look at these 100 in metastatic malignant melanoma. And we did an expression array of, of tissue cores and found almost 85% of everything that regulates uh, immune fetal maternal tolerance at the placental side was present both in protein and in message in metastatic malignant melanoma. So cancer is utilizing, perhaps, the genetic code of reproduction in order to regulate the defense mechanism that it faces, namely immunity. 
What's interesting about pregnancy, though, that's not true of cancer, is in pregnancy and as in the menstrual cycle, one goes from state of active inflammation or potential of active inflammation and tolerance and back and forth. And in pregnancy, one goes from a state of tolerance to basically resolution to normalcy. And this happens somewhere in the early third cycle, third trimester of pregnancy. In cancer, we go onto the slippery slope of increasing immunologic failure, increasing dysfunction, ultimately capitulation of the immune defenses and tumor progression. So what we started looking about three years ago is what systemically takes place at this inflection point of pregnancy. You know, are there things, are there physiologic signals that take place during the phase of transition from tolerance to active inflammation in a nine-month physiologic system that can give me some insight of what are things I could, I could understand to change in advanced cancer. And as of uh, a few months ago, we have two kind of interesting candidates, galactin-9, galactin-3, possibly galactin-1, and short fetal DNAs that we're looking into various grants right now as potential mediators of this. But this is, so we're now, you know, I'm a cancer guy. I'm doing clinical trials in pregnant women, which is kind of confusing a lot of my bosses over there. Uh, but that's why I'm in three departments. That way nobody takes any ownership over me. So, <laughs> so you know, and in the end, you guys, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, br I'll bring it to a close. There's a message of this. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, can we make sense of all this? You know, fundamentally, how healthcare is delivered is a patient walks into your office you take a look at the situation. I don't have 10 years to, to sequence their, their, you know, RNA exome, God knows what, you know, from every cell that comes through. But can we, can we take the, the, the magnitude of data that we have? And we certainly do not suffer from data, but we do suffer from understanding of it. You know, we have many biomarkers, many assays. There's variable consensus what any of this means. And this stuff is, is bankrupting the country. I mean, you know, I, I deal with Medicare almost every, every week in trying to advocate for my patients who have a choice of whether or not to buy food on their table for their children versus to pay for, for, for a drug for, you know, that, that at times can cost up to 30 grand a month. So, you know, these are, these are real life practical, you know, this is not esoterica, this is not something recombinant, this is the real deal that we have to deal with. So, how do, we, how do we get through this? Is there a way to comprehend the big picture? Is there a way that we can decide this is relevant to study, or if we study this corner of the universe, we may be more likely to help people than if we study this corner of the universe, not dependent on, on, on what my personal funding record is where I could be funded or not. So the, the, the answer is there might be. So cancer immune control dynamics uh, is a hypothesis that we developed some years ago, where the theory is that the rate of population change of any observed effect, okay, everybody pay attention now, this is gonna be applied mathematics. Uh, so the biomarker, so this, the thing that we measure in blood, we assume is the sum of all population changing causes of all things that influence it. So in another word, serum porcelain levels are likely affected by everything that happens in blood. And can we understand and reverse engineer the reasons for that change in a coupled system of the human body by using reverse dynamics? This builds upon a model of approximants of all possible causes. We use mathematics, 
and observe patient data to estimate all values for all unknown approximate coefficients, okay? This is basically, all this says is if you have an algebraic problem, you have to have two knowns to answer one unknown, not have one unknown to answer two or five unknowns. And we could potentially, by doing this type of analysis, assign relative causal strengths measures for all causes. Basically say one influence, A influences B by 50% or 70%, or there's an unknown factor that influences this given change. Conventional modeling systems uh, normally involved, and I think the one that is most, most near and dear to all of us is the Michaelis-Mentor uh, equation. We take an isolated model system, we study this, you know, substrate, the enzyme, product, we, we measure this very well regulated, and then we get a result that is very interpretable, easy to model, but its relevance to biology is unknown because that modeling system is uncoupled from everything in reality. So what we said is rather, and this is where most of mathematical modeling of biological system exists. What we said is could we take the reverse? Could we sort of acknowledge that everything's complicated and use engineering tools and modern, modern mathematical tools to reverse engineer the couplings of the systems and their mutual interactions using engineering and mathematics based on human data. And as it turns out, there is, but unfortunately the guys that know how to do it work for, for a government agency. So lucky for me, the space shuttle program got canned. I had a little bit of money. They needed to hire some engineers. And we basically started a five-year collaboration that basically is trying to model the human immune system as it interacts with cancer based on serial collection of peripheral blood data and trying to understand the dynamic interactions between the various parameters of immunity. The model has three assumptions, and I'm sorry this doesn't project very well. There's a linear, there's a bilinear, and there's a trilinear assumption. The cause, uh, the effect is what we measure in blood. The in the linear assumption, that effect has a singular cause. In the bilinear assumption, the given effect has a cause and has a modulator. And the trilinear assumption says that the effect that we measure has a cause, a trigger, and modulation, okay? Pretty simple, right? You know, you kick the ball, the ball goes. You kick the ball against wind, the ball doesn't go straight but comes back in your face. And you kick the ball against the opponent's team and God knows what's gonna happen. So this is a prototype of software that we're developing right now with NASA and IBM. Uh, the code right now is about two million pages long. It is on NORADS, uh, NOMADS, uh, data uh, mainframe at Goddard uh, that we've finally reduced. And the idea here will be to import the vast amounts of data that we have and simply ask a simple question. As the network self-assemble with the interactions that we measure, can we separate what is good, what is bad? What is good outcome, what is bad outcome? This could potentially be applied to genomics, proteomics, this omics, that omics, uh, but the first thing we need to do is I need to get funded on this, so we're gonna publish the first grant uh, on this. So hopefully January of 2016, we'll have, we'll have this ready. So in summary, you know, for the treatment of metastatic malignant meloma, as, as we were talking earlier today, you know, there, there's been a lot of progress in our field. This is a disease once believed to complete, be completely refractory to all cancer therapy. In last month alone, the FDA has ruled positively in three applications for three new treatments in this condition. Melanoma immunotherapy has achieved early success, and I emphasize early success, but much needs to be done. 
most patients with metastatic melanoma still will die of their disease more than anything else. There are unique features of cancer immunotherapeutics that require unique approaches to individualization of therapy. I think biomarker use, if not for anything but saving money, remember, these are phenomenally expensive treatments that people have sold their farms, their homes, they have mortgaged the future of their children or not to stay alive for another year. So this is, you know, I, I can't dictate the cost of drugs, but I can potentially figure out better ways to use them. And finally, innovative combinatorial therapeutics among different treatment modalities will likely yield success. I think thinking of not just adding more of the same thing, but coming at it from different angles, as, as some work that's done at your, you guys' institution with BRAF inhibitors and immunotherapeutics, I think uh, offers great potential. So with that, I just want to sort of acknowledge, you know, the, the, the usual acknowledgement slides. And, you know, I, I primarily acknowledge, you know, the, the hundreds and thousands of patients that have participated in Mayo Clinic clinical trials, both institutional, regional, and national. Our lab, my many collaborators and good friends, and, you know, our, our global uh, alliance and, and colleagues. And I'll finally uh, end with the logo of our, of our Department of Immunology. You know, the reason immunity is going to get it is because we've been killing it for 500 million years. So with that, thank you very much, and I'll take questions. <laughs>
wasn't yet, especially for the, you know, the, the univalent FABs, which is what we really are going to need here, not the bivalent. Uh, we went on with the IL-2 simply for the size of the molecule. But if, uh, if we can validate this approach, we, we have essentially a running list of everybody's favorite molecules to interrogate the microenvironment in real time. And all of the stuff that I've shown you on the uh, histologic sections, the multiple <coughs> colors, we in some phase of development or another have leading towards in vivo imaging in humans. Right oh. down here in front. Uh, oh, yeah, sir. Mark. When you talked about um, pregnancy, uh, you referred to, um, I think, fragmented fetal DNA as yeah. a, a uh, signaling strategy for the immune system. I'm just not familiar with this. Is this a well-described? No, no, actually it doesn't. And uh, so what we found is we went on to a major search and rescue mission, you know, in, in pregnant women trying to understand really the first uh, first month of the third trimester where a lot of the polarization of systemic immunity goes from tolerance to activation. And among the many things that seem to either uh, turn the tide or keep the tide down, uh, 300 base pair roughly uh, bits and pieces of DNA that seem to be coming from the fetus is what we're finding to be a very profound toll-like receptor agonist profile uh, that these pieces of DNA almost logarithmically grow, Mark, towards uh, early in the phases when immunity shifts. We can in vitro demonstrate at least that the, the DNAs that we extract from plasma from uh, pregnant women can, can correct the sort of some of the tolerogenic mechanisms in cancer patients. And they seem to all emanate from kind of telomeric elements from multiple chromosomes. They're very CPG-rich regions. So they may very well be a toll-like receptor agonist whose concentration is dramatically increasing at the la later phases of pregnancy, contributing to repolarization of immunity. Have you been able to go back um to the first trimester and mm -hmm. second to see if this molecule or these fragments are in fact produced at this time? Uh, yeah, be honest, minimal, at minimal amounts. They, they almost grow, be honest, it's like a thousand fold uh, changes from early, early sort of implantation, kind of first uh, trimester versus third trimester. Yeah. You know, as, as, as we talked yeah. earlier, what might really be happening is mm -hmm. there may be multiple yeah. uh, uh, activators yeah. or deactivators through pregnancy, Throughout the starting process. right from yeah. implantation, exactly. uh, and uh, different ones pick it up at different stages in the cycle. Exactly, and I think this one was, yes, this one, we were able to connect most of these to the Y chromosome, so that's why I think this is really coming from, from the fetal side of, uh, of this, but it's still a very interesting work in progress, and the nice thing about it is they have a relatively sequenced homogeneity, and there's, very, there's, a, there's a similarity of the uh, restriction sites on these pieces. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, we're, we're working our way through, you know, what, 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 what is possibly slicing and dicing this stuff uh, to release it on the blood side of, of the mother. Uh, and, and that's, you know, but they definitely seem to be immunologically active, which is, and in the right way. We have time for one more question, sure. Bill. Sure. Regarding the mechanism of action of PD-1 inhibition, you talked about overt death of the effector T-cells. Early on, as the name suggested, yep. that was the favorite thing. Then it swung wildly to functional inactivation. Yep. Has the pendulum swung back? To be honest with you. Be thinking about rescuing the T-cells right. right. other than just keeping them alive. That's absolutely right. To be honest with you. And I think 
What, what's interesting about it, on the clinical side of, 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 of the world, I think even though the regulatory component of this has really sort of come out in recent years, what has come out in the clinical trials that have been done with PD-1 inhibitors, it seems to be at least that it's actually the, the relative numbers of live versus dead or, you know, so more or less apoptotic that seem to be driving the clinical outcome, not the regulatory changes as much. Now, whether that's a sampling error because we collect peripheral blood and this is more of an effect in the marrow where there's a lot of this, uh, you know, hepatic PD-1 positive cells behave differently than, than those in, in, in the bone marrow, uh, I don't know. But to be honest with you, I think one of the things is, is we're sort of looking back at that data again. And in the context of successful treatment with anti-PD-1 therapy, at least our thinking right now, at least within our group, is that, you know, what we thought to be a simplistic explanation of live versus dead, apoptotic versus not, may not be entirely yet shelved. <laughs> and we're sort of looking at it back for it. Yeah. Would you join me in thanking Dr. Mark for the great <laughs>